You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Prehistories Podcast with me, Kim Biddulph. We are part of the Archaeology Podcast Network. The aim of this podcast is to discuss with fellow archaeologists the fictional stories set in our prehistoric past and explore how well we think they've brought them to life and how difficult it is to flesh out the dry archaeology reports so that we can focus on the stories of the people who lived at those times. In this, our Christmas episode, I'm talking with Professor Francis Pryor of Flagfen and Time Team fame. Hello, Francis. Hello, Kim. Thank you very much for joining me to talk about this this book. Uh, we're going to be discussing a children's book called The Ravens, which is was written by James Dyer. It's set at the time of Caesar's invasion of Britain, the first invasion, I should say. Um, and we're going to discuss kind of the issues that it raises about um, Iron Age society and particularly about the use of hill forts uh, and things like that. So the book is actually based on Ravensburg Castle in Hertfordshire and the author, James Dyer, was the archaeologist who directed excavations there in the 60s and 70s. Uh, that's right, isn't it, Francis? You dug with him there, didn't you? I did, yes. I always thought it was in Bedfordshire, but I'm sure you've got it right. It's just on the border. It is just on the border, isn't it? I think that a member of the North Hertfordshire Archaeology Society, uh, Gil Burley, oh, yeah. um, got in contact with me and was, uh, and so we discussed that it was actually in their territory. Okay. <laughs> Apparently so. Although, of course, the the um, the boundaries may have changed. That's the that's the thing. No, I doubt it. I think I got it wrong, and probably dear old <laughs> James did too. Yeah. <laughs> So can you tell us anything about the excavations that happened at the time and what, what you what you took part in, what you dug up? Well, yes. I mean, it was I was there. It was 1963, the summer of 1963, wow. which is which is way back in the Bronze Age. Indeed. Yeah. Before I was born. <laughs> and um, I'd only just learned to drive. Right. And um, I hadn't yet gone to university. That was going to happen later that year. Right. And um, I was looking for something to do over the summer in my gap year. So was this your first dig or had you been on digs before? No, it was the first dig I ever went on. Wow. So you learned everything there. I did. I absolutely did. And um, James Dyer was the kindest nicest man um he he really was i was terribly fond of him i think we all were he he was a lovely man and um he took immense trouble with everybody yeah and um, i can remember the site was up in some quite steep hills not very mm. far from luton and um i had a i i drove my grandfather's car my grandfather had died a couple of years previously, and I inherited this ancient car, which used to rattle. And um, I, I drove there um, for the, I think it was about three, four weeks that, he, that the dig went on. And um, it, right up in the hills, 
it was quite a difficult bit of driving and um i basically learned how to be an archaeologist so you know i i learned what sort of trowel to buy um, <laughs> and i learned how to use it i learned the basic tools of my trade um, i learned how to draw plans how to draw you know sections you know the exposed soil in the, in the side of a trench i learned all the things that really matter um, and it was done in a very gentle kind way constructive way so they didn't say francis you're an idiot you can't keep your <laughs> pencil sharp or something you know it was all done very nicely and um the people who worked on this dig were mostly older people i suspect looking back on it they were probably retired um although there were some younger people and i just i suspect i was probably the youngest person on the dig whereas nowadays when i go on a dig i'm usually the oldest <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was absolutely wonderful and when i got home being you know a young man of whatever i was 18 or so i'd go to the village pub and the village where we lived was about um 15 miles from ravensbury in hertfordshire in north hertfordshire and um i used to meet people in in the pub and they'd say oh francis what did you find on your excavation today was this a, this was the rural village and i'd say oh today we worked on an iron age roundhouse you know and people would look at me in astonishment they said they had houses in those days wow i know you see you, you got to remember this is before time team this is before yeah. television nobody had any idea ordinary people hadn't had archaeology taught to them it certainly wasn't in schools most people didn't know that the you know the the iron age britons the people who julius caesar attacked were civilized yes you know, they had no idea as far as they were concerned they probably lived in caves yeah oh yeah absolutely there is no a lot of the time it, i think it's still the same today um especially as prehistory has only just started to be taught in schools in this last two years yes. um so the the there is an, an idea that you went straight from caves which everybody knows about uh to the romans and that's it and there's not the huge amounts of uh, well, you know, with Stonehenge along the way, everybody knows about Stonehenge. Um, yeah. But, but you know, they may as well have been built by a cave person like Stig of the Dump, which I'm just reading to my daughter at the moment. I might do a podcast <laughs> on that at some point. I love Stig of the Dump. Yeah, yeah it's a great book. <laughs> Except at the end where this cl clearly this Neanderthal is raising a stone circle. It's like, oh, no, come on. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, that was a big spoiler for anyone who hasn't who hasn't read Stig of the Dump. But we're not doing Stig of the Dump right now. It's just that I'm reading it at the moment. Uh, we're doing The Ravens. So what kind of things um, were you, you were discovering roundhouses and you were digging those up? Did you dig into the um, uh, the Hillfort Ditch or anywhere like that? Did you um, dig any storehouses or, or um, other features? Yes, um, we did uh, quite a lot of storage pits, yeah. which probably would have been um, outside houses. Um, where they stored their grain. One of them, I think, we even had grain in it. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty good preservation. Absolutely. Because it was sort of chalky soil. 
as we were right. up the top of this hill. There was a bit of clay there, but chalk when you went further down. Mm-hmm. And then um, I and another chap, we dug a section through the great ditch and um, bank that went around the edge, as you know, they're known as the ramparts, that went around yeah. the edge of the hill fort. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it it was quite extraordinary, you know. I mean, I was very fit in those days, but I can remember thinking, by God, you know, I mean, people in the Iron Age shifted this stuff without modern picks and shovels. Yeah. You know, they, they, they did it using, um, you know, red deer antler um, picks and, 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 you know, they didn't and have... And digging sticks, of, yeah, yeah. Yeah, or digging sticks, all of that stuff. Um, and um, I, you know, I, I, I dug through the big bank around the outside, well, there were two banks, three even. Really? Um, and I dug through one of them. Um, and then in a very, very, we had a, I'll never forget it, we had a, a, a very heavy rain. It was rained hard overnight, and then it was still raining in the morning when I got there. And this was towards the end of the dig, and my job was to draw the the exposed walls of this bank, you know, the, the section as we call it. Yeah. And um, in this very heavy rain, we had a collapse, and and the walls actually collapsed from the bottom inwards. Oh wow! Yeah, and so if I'd uh, I, had I actually been in there. Yeah. Um, it would have caught my feet, and that would have been horrible. Yeah, you know. I, so I, I, it was about then that I learned that on archaeological digs, you've got to be very aware of your your personal safety. You know, you really can, if you're in any sort of a hole, it doesn't have to be a deep one. Mm-hmm. You've got to be so careful about your safety. Yes, absolutely. I remember digging as a professional, which I did for a very short. Uh, seven months in yeah. Essex, in Essex clay and yes you, I mean even in that you you know there are strict rules about how deep you go without shoring yep. and things like that so yeah yeah absolutely yeah amazing but it, so I mean I did and, and we dug uh, part of a roundhouse um, mm. it was it was terrific training um, for the archaeology that's you know occupied me for the the subsequent 40 years indeed yeah. yes i mean the roundhouses um it, what what's left of the roundhouses after they've all rotted away what do you actually dig up um well what you normally dig up and over the years i've probably dug a couple of hundred of them yeah uh, is the um a gully it's called which is in effect the gutter which yes. takes the drips that come off the round roof so they got a conical roof mm-hmm. um and then you have this gully around the outside which takes the drips that come off the roof mm-hmm. so that's normally one of the first things you find but if a site's been quite badly damaged by modern plowing which is often the case mm. you won't get that gully in which case the most um frequently found things are the two posts on either side of the doorway most roundhouses in the iron age um, used to face south or southeast that was towards the rising sun and um, the doorway faced in that direction and 
um, there was nearly always only one door. You didn't have two doors. Mm. So you then had a circular ditch, usually about sort of nine, ten metres diameter. And um, what you find on a dig is the circular gully that goes outside the walls, mm-hmm. normally about a metre, half a metre away from the walls. That keeps helps to keep the walls dry. Then you find a ring of post holes, which were the holes dug to receive the big posts that hold up the walls and support the roof. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you don't find the posts on most sites, but what you find is the hole that was either made by digging into the chalk or by ramming a post into the chalk. Mm. And in the middle of that hole, if you're very lucky, you'll get what we call the post ghost, which is a slightly darker stain in the dark hole of the post hole. And that is the ghost, the the last remains of the post that was driven in there. So um, we'll get a ring of post holes. um, And sometimes if the house is burnt down, you'll get burnt clay which still has got um, woven wood impressions in it Mm. from the walls Um, it's called wattle and daub Um, and then uh, the other thing you nearly always find unless you're very unlucky is the hearth that went in the middle of the house which was where the um, iron age lady who ran the household did the cooking Oh, did she? Oh, was it was it always a lady? <laughs> uh, we don't know. We honestly don't know. <laughs> this is. Uh, I'd like to touch on that a little bit later. The reason I yeah. ask you for such uh, was a, a, a wonderfully clear explanation of what you actually find is because I think this particular episode of the podcast um, would be very useful for the teachers who are now teaching about the Stone Age to Iron Age of Britain. Um, to think about what evidence there actually is and as I I have the great privilege of working in a roundhouse and teaching children about the Iron Age at the Chiltern Open Air Museum and I have to say this last week with the rain that that little gully is really being very well created at the moment (laughs) around their roundhouse you can see it very clearly yeah um but inside it's all toasty and warm um, so the other day, the kids were, were really surprised when I pointed out that it was raining very hard outside and that we were we hadn't even noticed it when we were inside. I mean, you've actually built uh, or helped been part of teams that have built um, uh, replica roundhouses, haven't you? I have. Yeah. Um, um, in uh, just before the Iron Age, um, they used to roof them with a mixture of um reed thatch and turf you know like Mm. soil cut off your lawn um and we built a turf roofed roundhouse when they had the great hurricane that hit england in 1989 i think it was and um i remember being in our roundhouse looking out of the front door at bits of modern factories that were just blowing past yeah. And yet here I was in a Bronze Age roundhouse, as you know, snug as a bug in a rug. Yeah. You know, they roundhouses are perfectly designed for our 
English or British climate. You know, they're terrifically wind resistant. They simply don't budge in the wind. They don't move. They don't shake. They are superb, much, much stronger than uh, a square or rectangular house, mm. which we all live in nowadays. You know, we, we should live in. And I did a, um, a little survey when I started finding roundhouses in Peterborough. Yeah. And I worked out the floor area of an Iron Age roundhouse was almost exactly the same as the floor area of the cottages that the Great Northern Railway were building for their workforce when they huh. put the railway into Peterborough in 1850. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so when people describe Iron Age roundhouses as huts, they're missing the point. <laughs> oh, absolutely, yes. They're not huts. They never were huts. They were houses. Absolutely. And, you know, often they're portrayed in the one at Chilton Open Air Museum and in many other places where there are replica roundhouses, they are portrayed as one big open space with no upstairs and no divisions within that space, which might have been the case. But there are sometimes um, the lines of smaller fence posts, aren't there, inside, well, almost fence posts, dividing walls, you know. Um, So, um, but it's just, it's, those are very much more ephemeral to find. They're very, very more difficult to to actually pick up, aren't they? So it's, um, yeah, the reconstructions of of all these roundhouses are uh, experimental, really, aren't they? They are, but we do actually nowadays know an enormous amount about mm. Iron Age roundhouses. Mm. Um, and one of the things that's extraordinary is that throughout the British Isles, you know, this includes Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Iron Age roundhouses were organised in very much the same way, which suggests not that people had telephones yeah. and were in contact, but that they were in regular contact, that people were regularly talking to other people in villages all around them who were talking to other people in villages all around them, and so on. So that um, the, the houses, nearly all have got doorways that face south or southeast, right across the British Isles. The other thing is that on the southern side of the house, the, that was the area where people prepared food and where they lived during the day. We can tell this from the rubbish that we find on the floor. Then at the back of the house, that's directly opposite the door, was they often had an altar, a sort of ceremonial table or dresser, um, which was probably devoted to the ancestors. And in front of that, or beside that, sat the person who was head of the family, Mm. which in Celtic families may well have been a woman. And she would have sat there when important visitors came. So they'd walk through the door with the sun behind them, and he or she, the head of the household, would be sitting opposite the door and of course having come out of the outdoors your eyes wouldn't focus on that person because the light would be wrong but they could see you perfectly and then on the northern side of the roundhouse that was where people slept that's where their beds were and that's where occasionally we find um, burials Mm. um, quite often of children 
and sometimes children that had been reburied um, probably two, even 300 years ago, mummies in effect. These have been found on some wow. digs. So the organization of house of the house followed the movement of the sun every day, yeah. from day to evening to night. And it makes sense. In a modern house, you tend to put the sitting room, the living room on the south side facing the sun, whereas bedrooms tend to go to the back of the house. Yeah. You know, it's partly convenience, but I suspect in the Iron Age, it was also something to do with not religion so much as people's view of the world. Yes. We didn't, in those days, people didn't live like we do today with a calendar which goes from 19... Um, 95 to 96 to 97 or 2015, 16, 17. They didn't think like that. They thought time is cyclical. It's winter, spring, summer, autumn. Winter, spring, summer, autumn. That was what matters. Just as it, that's the way farmers think today. They think in terms of cycles. And that's the way people thought in the past. And they organized their houses in a way that reflected that. That's um, uh, fascinating, and it, and it overlaps a lot with what I try to tell children. And it's, it, but some of it is is quite difficult to to actually say. I would say also that I tend to stand when I'm teaching inside a roundhouse opposite the doorway in that position as the householder, um, and it means that. Once their eyes have adjusted to indoors, they can all see me. I'm in the most, the best lit place, um, and they can all see what I'm, uh, ha what my, the gestures that I'm making, and um, and watch me as I'm talking. Because otherwise, um, it's very difficult for them to concentrate if they can't actually, you know, pick me out. If I stand in the doorway, I'm just a silhouette, as you said, and and it's difficult for them to see me. Anyway, it's all very, it's it's all fascinating. <laughs> The Archaeology and AL podcast presents a monthly series of lectures on all aspects of archaeology. These lectures are part of the Archaeology in the City program, hosted by the University of Sheffield in England, and are held at the Red Deer Pub near the end of the month. The podcast can be heard a few days later. Check out the Red Deer if you're in the area, or find this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get back to the show. Did you know that James had written this children's book? I did, actually, yes. Um, I saw a copy of it. I think it came out in 1990. I saw a copy. I think James may have sent me one. Ah, uh, right. Uh, yeah, you're right. 1990, yes. yes. Yeah. And, um, yes, I I, um, was, I knew that he was very um, heavily involved. He was a school teacher, as you, as you know, mm. uh, heavily involved with, with young people and with schools. Um, and, I mean, single-handedly, I think he did more to introduce archaeology into schools mm. than anyone else. And now that we've got um, prehistory in the national curriculum for primary schools, I think it's wonderful. And I 
It's such a shame. I think James died before before seeing um, that. Yeah, before seeing that was he. I mean, a lot of it is down to him. I'm sure of it. A lovely man. Yeah, yeah. it's um, it, it, and it is just a wonderful book, and and I'm hoping that by promoting it here and promote and I've promoted it on my blog on schools prehistory, that it does get used a lot more because it's um. You know, it's lovely to have it written by the person who actually excavated that place. I think that actually adds quite a lot to it. What did you think of the book in general? I know you you kind of dipped in and out. What did you think of it when you were reading bits? Um, well, yeah, yes, I, I love it. I mean, I, I write. I, I now yes. have started writing fiction myself, um, and and I am you know I, I'm a professional writer. Yes, and it was it was very well done. Um, it, 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 it's got a good storyline. It carries you along. You really identify with the young man who's the hero. Yeah. Um, and I love the way it starts in the modern world. And then after the first chapter, you're you're in uh, the first century BC. Yes. Shall I give um, Shall I give a precy of it? Actually. Um, yes. Give a precy. So um, the Raven starts with a boy called Adam and his friend. Well, no, not a friend really, but a boy he knows. Um, who is, his second name is Aslet, and um, that's how he is referred to in that first chapter. And they're running. Adam is very good at running, and Aslet is only just behind him. And then. Um, Adam and Aslet stop at the top of a hill where they can see Ravensburg Castle. So this is in the modern times. Aslet goes away after insulting Adam a few times. And Adam kind of falls into a little bit of a reverie, a bit of a dream, and imagines what it would have been like uh, when Caesar invaded Britain in 55 BC. And... um, uh, and then it goes into the story. And Adam is now the the main protagonist in the story who lives in the hill fort. Aslet is the bully that um, is his main rival. Um, and it charts the adventures. And Adam's running um, comes into it when he has to run a, a, a message back to his people about what Caesar is doing and some of the... Um, uh, the betrayals that are happening and uh, things like that. So it's um, uh, it, it is actually just quite a gripping um adventure story. I think it's it's got really good structure uh that also incorporates, but with quite a light touch. I think quite a lot of of evidence. So it's um yeah, I think it was it was really lovely. I won't give away too much about it. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the things that um we tend to forget. Um, and was never really clear to me when I was at school, is that, you know, Julius Caesar did his two visits to Britain in 55 and 54 BC. And then the Roman invasion, the main Roman invasion, wasn't for very nearly a 100 years after that. And um, Caesar's invasion had one extraordinary effect um, which this is something which has been demonstrated by uh, Barry Cunliffe at Oxford, mm. and that is that the invasion effectively stopped southwestern Britain from being the main area where people traded with Roman Europe, mm. and everything switched east. 
um, away from 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 Devon yes. and, 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 and 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 Dorset, and it switched east to 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 Kent and to Essex, and that was the area that became very prosperous. Yeah. And one of the things that we always think, you know, is that when the Romans invaded, which they probably did at uh, Kent. But there is some doubt about this. But when the Romans invaded, everyone imagines that we Brits were standing on the on the shore, you know, dressed in woad and, and hurling <laughs> spears and daggers at them and, and being being very unpleasant. But in actual fact, by then, the richer people in the southeast of England had been wearing Roman clothes for at least two generations for 50 or 60 years mm. and we know that because of the sort of safety pins that they wore to hold up things like toga-like clothes yes and then as fibulae so that um you know many of the tribes many of the uh, of of the important people and their, you know, their servants and, and, and their tenants and people like that would have been firm supporters of Romans, of, 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 of the Roman Empire. So um, it, it's a bit simple sometimes to think, you know, it was us Brits versus the Romans. Yes. No, I'm sorry, it wasn't. No, absolutely. <laughs> and I, I think it would be interesting, actually, to have a book that was set uh, in the in those days before AD forty three, yes. um, to to actually contrast the ravens with, um, because at this point, of course, it's. I mean, the the, the other thing is 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 that the people in eight, in fifty five BC, some of those Brits had been involved with fighting Caesar on the continent mm. with the Gauls, so Absolutely. so it wasn't like it was a big surprise and they'd never even heard of the guy. Um, so yeah. Anyway, it's um it, it's. Uh, it is a fascinating time and it is sometimes as you say it's taught a little bit too simply then again we're talking about it being taught to seven-year-olds um oh yes however i think a, a seven-year-old can handle a little bit of um complexity in that in fact they love adventure stories and they love that that kind of in a, if you're telling a story, this is why I think using stories like this, fiction, is a great way to get across some of those things that would actually be just really difficult to explain if you were doing it in a non-fiction book. Um, I mean, as as you've mentioned, you are a writer. You're quite a prolific writer of both non-fiction and you're writing your second book, or is it written already, your second fiction book? Um, the yeah, Alan Cadbury I'm, I'm novels. Right. <laughs> Have I interrupted yes, your I'm... writing? No, 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 no. It's a pleasure. I tend to do my writing early in the morning. Right. But one of the things I love about writing fiction, I mean, I tend to write, you know, murder crime fiction. But one of the things I love about writing fiction is that I, it gives me an opportunity to bring archaeology into the present day. Um, you know, my, my 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 hero is a chap called Alan Cadbury, mm -hmm. and he's an archaeologist, but he's also a detective. Yes. Believe that, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> Surely the two should be inextricably linked, yes. Well, they are, actually. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I have been involved. I have had policemen approach me and say, you know, what do you think of this, that or the other? I think many archaeologists have. 
Um, and um, But that's not the point. The point is that archaeology isn't actually about the past. Mm. It is about the past. Of course it's about the past. But it's about what the past can teach us about about the present, how we can approach the present. I mean, if it was just about looking at the past, it would be like stamp collecting. It would be irrelevant. But the fact is, archaeology teaches us about aspects of our own lives. You know, we can learn from the past. We can learn from the mistakes of the past. And I do wish modern politicians would learn from mistakes of the past. Oh, at least would know how to, uh, yeah, would be able to quote some history without getting it wrong. (laughs) Oh, I mean, God, I mean, I can think of one recent major military campaign in the Middle East, which every archaeologist I know said was going to be a disaster and it was and it's proved to be and it's really messed up the modern world and um you know it's because politicians won't learn the lessons of the past because they're too arrogant and they don't think it matters they think it's irrelevant yes well it isn't Mm, no absolutely i think yes i have noticed that in your writing the uh, the the desire to (laughs) to, to uh, plead the, uh, the case for studying a little bit more archaeology and studying a little bit more history to get the um, uh, so that you you at least have some context for what's going on in the world yes. yeah and I completely agree with you now I wanted to um, focus on the use of hill forts as well which I know you've yep. got some interesting theories about and um, uh, I wanted to I'll start by reading a couple of extracts about from the the start of the book um, that where Adam kind of explains a little bit about the uh, layout of the um, of the hill fort. And then um, we might discuss something or I might go straight on to the third extract. Sorry, there's going to be a couple of extracts here, um, which mm-hmm. talks about the attack on the hill fort um, by Caesar. So if you just bear with me, I am going to find my extracts. So this is Adam that's following um, his grandfather. So the boy followed the old man through the gateway into the fort. Adam's grandfather tied up his horse outside a large rectangular hut built solidly of wood with a thatched roof. This was the great hall of the elders. Adam was only allowed in the hall on special occasions. Usually it was dark, but piercing rays of sunlight would fall on the battle trophies, the heads of warriors killed in combat. An ancient, tortured face would stare out of the darkness and fill the onlooker with awe. So that's uh, the first extract. And then slightly later on, we find out about um, Adam's education. The boy's house belonged to the king. In it, all the boys of noble birth were taught to become warriors. They were shown how to use a sling to fight and wrestle, and when there was no war, the crafts by which they could earn a living. Gonal, the chief druid, taught them the legends of the kingdom, its laws and how it should be governed, whilst others taught them the skills of horsemanship. Now the time had come to choose a new captain of the house, and Adam and Aslet were the main contenders. So there's quite a lot to discuss just in those two extracts, really. Um, uh, this this is Iron Age society, and should we start with the buildings? Because we have talked about about roundhouses, uh, yeah. but in this um, 
uh, James is dis- is suggesting that there were large rectangular halls in a similar fashion to, I suppose, a great hall of the Saxon period. Um, did you find any any of those big rectangular halls when you were digging at Ravensburg, or were um, are there others on other hill forts, or do they all tend to be round, um, even the, the the large buildings? What do you think? Uh, good point. Um... So the uh, most hill forts are remarkable in that they produce roundhouses, and um, most of the roundhouses are of approximately the same size. Um, sometimes you'll get um, slightly more important houses facing the entrance way into the hill fort, um, and these are slightly larger, but you, what you never get in a hill fort, at least not to my knowledge, are big sort of palatial houses, big round houses. We only know of one, well, well, we know one in Dorset and then we know of one in Norfolk, really big round houses. Um, the, the, the vast majority, and there must now be thousands of them, are all remarkably similar in size and round and their doorways face the same direction more or less. So, which suggests to me that society was actually remarkably equal, and it wasn't one where there were hugely powerful chiefs. Um, You know, the chiefs were very much bound by other members of society. Now, the big public buildings tend to be found outside Hillforts, by and large. Um, I don't, I mean, some hill forts have produced larger buildings, but very few, um, most of my my knowledge come outside um, hill forts. Um, and, uh, I mean, but hill forts could be very well organised. The hill fort at Danebury in, in, in Hampshire, excavated by Barry Cunliffe, has got um, rectangular buildings. Well, they're very strange rectangular buildings. They're more like storehouses arranged along roads. I mean, roads exist in hill forts. Um, but um, one of the things that's very striking about hill forts is the way that they don't have hugely um, important communal buildings. And uh, I suspect that the hugely important communal buildings were in the fertile ground outside the hill fort where most people actually lived. I suspect that most hill forts were places where people went, um, not just in times of peril, but they were the sort of capital where you... Um, um, the, the hill fort symbolised the unity and the prestige of tribe. Yep. They, they were more about identity of a group of people than about defence. Uh, it's remarkably rare to find big war cemeteries in Hillfort. Indeed. Yeah. Let me read that last extract, which I, su- I suggested I would read. Um, yeah. So, attacking the entrance, this is the west gate that um, Caesar is attacking. Attacking the entrance was no easy matter, since there was no direct approach. The banks and ditches interlocked in front of it, making it necessary for anyone approaching to twist and turn. Certainly it would be impossible to make a direct attack until the ramparts were cleared of men. With this aim in mind, the Romans lined up half a dozen large crossbows and loaded them with long darts tipped with burning rags. 
These were fired at the wooden palisades, and soon the timbers were crackling as they blazed. And the picture accompanying that actually um, does show um, uh, the banks and ditches with a uh, very big palisade and a large gate area made out of wood and lots and lots of roundhouses behind where people are finally um, leaving the hill fort. So the hill fort doesn't withstand much of an, an attack. The, the people tend to, um, the, the people leave quite quickly um, and get out of the way of the, of the Romans. So um, that kind of thing, there is, as you say, there isn't a great deal of evidence for it. The gr famous war cemetery at Maiden Castle is nothing of the sort, is it? No, no. And one of the things about hill forts is that most of them came into existence about 500 years before the Revolution. Yes, attack. yes, I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and um, most of them, uh, and I mean most of them, um, had gone... Well, the, the people weren't living there. They weren't using them regularly um, for at least a couple of generations um, before the Roman conquest. So they'd very much um, ceased to be um, the sites of the moment, you know, the, 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 um, the, the forts. They weren't built, they weren't defended right up to the Roman, the Roman invasion. Mm. Um, far from it, in fact. Um, and um, James went back and did some further excavations after I'd been with him at Ravensburg and showed that it had probably been um, re-fortified or occupied um, just before Caesar's invasions. And and that may be the case, oh, wow. although I, sus mm. you know, I, I, I remain to be convinced about it because it's very rare indeed but you actually find hill forts um, re-fortified, um, you know, to, to resist the Romans. Quite often people returned there, went up there uh, to hill forts um, when, when the Roman invasion happened, um, and then the Romans went and put temples up on hill forts yeah. as a way of, uh, as a way of um, sort of saying, look, we're in control now. Um, but I suspect the vast majority, you know, and we're talking maybe two and a half, even three million people, the vast majority of the population of Britain at the time of the Roman conquest would have lived where people live today, on the lower lying, flatter land, uh, away from the hills. Mm. But it makes a good story, doesn't it? <laughs> it makes a cracking story. And you th I think that's one of the great things about... Uh, um, writing fiction is is uh, also to well it really when you're writing fiction you have to conflate certain things don't you and um, you know it might be a little bit awkward for an archaeologist reading it thinking but Hillforts weren't even occupied at that point or <laughs> uh, there's no evidence for Caesar attacking it um, but uh, it does it does it really matter Do you, no. <laughs> no, I, I agree with you absolutely. I don't think it does. What does matter is that there was a Roman conquest. Admittedly, very few Romans came over when there was the conquest. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, the Britons were, generally speaking, against Rome. 
uh, except in the southeast of England. But I mean, all the Scots and the people in the north of England and the Cornish and the Welsh and so on were all dead against Rome. And um, there was such a thing as Celtic culture. Um, and the, the Celts, which is just another name for Iron Age people, um, were by and large anti-Rome. Um, and then th this miracle happened, this wonderful miracle, which I think is far more important than the Roman invasion. And that is after the mid-first century AD, when the Romans invaded, Subsequently, you have the development of this new culture called Romano-British, but it's very, very individual, very individualistic, very characteristic. It's quite unlike anything else, anywhere else in Europe. And that is the one of the key moments in British history. That is when we started to acquire our modern identity. Um, it was about then that people realised that we were an island, that we, we did have this strange insular identity. And I think um, Roman Britain had made a huge contribution. I mean, laying aside the fact that it was British grain that fed the Roman army, the fact is that we had this culture which then slowly transformed itself into what was later called Anglo-Saxon culture. Mm. So, um, you know, I think we tend to linger too much on the military side of things. Um, yes, we Brits were bloody-minded. We, we, <laughs> we, we were difficult. <laughs> but come the 3rd century AD, the 3rd and 4th century AD, we're also extremely prosperous. We have our Roman villas, which are unique. No one else in Europe has Roman villas the way we do in Britain. And we had this extraordinary culture which didn't involve towns. Mm. Roman towns in Britain more or less failed. Mm. Um, but we had this rawly based culture which was prosperous, peaceful and successful and frankly i personally think was the envy of the rest of europe <laughs> yes i it's um we're straying into um into territory where i'm not so familiar with the uh, with all the historic stuff um <laughs> but it's it is interesting because as you say that that um, prehistoric mindset is not obliterated by the roman period by the roman invasion or the roman occupation it's um, it is very much a, a British take on Roman culture, and there are endless discussions and debates about Romanization of Britain. Um, but it is very much a, um, a case that the Britons took what they wanted from that Roman culture um, uh, and and made it something for themselves. However, the the roundhouses do eventually go and get replaced by rectangular buildings, sadly, <laughs> which I think is a, is a, a great shame. No, I absolutely agree. They, they do get replaced, but other things continued. Everybody knows the, 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 the myth, you know, the Anglo-Saxon myth of King Arthur and the sword Excalibur. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, which was hurled into the lake and the lady of the lake's hand grabs it and takes it down below the water. And King Arthur 
discovers the sword and pulls it out of a stone. Only he can do that. So I got cut off from Francis Pryor um, by my uh, Skype. Um, but we had covered quite a lot of uh, issues. I would just like to say that I think that uh, it's wonderful that James Dyer, who was an archaeologist and a school teacher, wrote this fictional book about his excavation, about the place that he dug up Ravensburg Castle and uh, created this fantastic adventure story. It's such a wonderful story to use when, when teaching children about the Iron Age, I think. Um, and I think that more archaeologists should um, try writing fiction. Try fictionalizing your site that you dug up. I mean, there are specific ways of writing when you're writing fiction, which are very different to writing um, a book about it or writing a report about it. And it, it could get you more into the, um, into the people of the time, which is what we're digging up, isn't it? We're digging up the people. Not the pots, as I keep on telling my pottery specialist husband. Um, so the that's uh, an interesting insight, I think. Um, let's hope that uh, um, this book gets read more widely because it's it's really a wonderful read. I'd like to thank Francis Pryor for coming on my podcast and. Um, for talking us through all the basics of Iron Age archaeology, um, as well as giving us an insight into what James Dyer was thinking when he was writing all this. Um, the, of course, Francis himself is an author, as he mentioned, and his second um, novel, which is a detective story, where the detective is also an archaeologist. And I meant to ask whether Alan Cadbury is based at all on Francis Pryor, but that will have to remain a mystery. His second Alan Cadbury novel, The Way, The Truth and the Dead, um, will be coming out soon, I hope. Um, and you can get in touch with Francis on Twitter, where he is at Pryor Francis, uh, and he has a, a blog as well, which is... Uh, priorfrancis.wordpress.com um, so I'm sure he would be thrilled if you went and commented on some of his posts there thank you so much for listening to this episode of Prehistories with me Kim Bidolf um, and tune in to our upcoming podcast which should include um, some real treats like a poetry special with Gavin McGregor so thank you so much for listening. It's been uh, lovely to talk to Francis, lovely to do, uh, uh, talk about Hillforts and uh, the Iron Age and uh, even a little bit about the Romans. That'll, But just a little bit will do. Thank you so much and listen in again soon. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.